As long as one remains a child, he is not agitated by seeing a beautiful woman. Although the sense organs are present, unless the age is right, there is no sex impulse. The favourable conditions surrounding the sex impulse are compared here to a garden or a nice solitary park. When one sees the opposite sex, naturally the sex impulse increases. It is said that if a man in a solitary place does not become agitated upon seeing a woman, he is considered to be a brahmachari. But this practice is almost impossible. The sex impulse is so strong that even by seeing, touching or talking, coming into contact with, or even thinking of the opposite sex, even in so many subtle ways, one becomes sexually impelled. Consequently, Brahmacharya Sannyasi is prohibited to associate with women, especially in a secret place. The substance enjoined that one should not even talk to a woman in a secret place, even if she happens to be one's own daughter, sister or mother. The sex impulse is so strong that even if one is very learned, he becomes agitated in such circumstances. If this is the case, how can a young man in a nice park remain calm and quiet after seeing a beautiful young woman? He is uh, omnipresent, the Supreme Lord, and he is the 
So although in one sense the living entity, the spirit soul, is the being the null of the body and being superior to matter, he is acting as the Purush or the enjoyer, although that's somewhat a false position because the actual enjoyer is the supernova or the Supreme Lord who is the actual proprietor and actually the living entity is in fact uh, uh, the joy or uh, one of the energies of the Lord, all of which are expanding the universe of the Supreme Lord. So, and uh, so one should know the field of activities, the narrow body consisting of the soul and the Supreme Soul and understand that actually the Supreme Soul is the actual enjoyer and the actual proprietor and the Spirit Soul is somewhat the um, uh, the um, has a little um, knowledge of the field of activities and a little ownership and um, so this is described in many different places uh, so, for instance, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, another analogy which helps for understanding it is uh, mentioned in um, okay. in text fourteen in the fifth chapter it describes. The embodied spirit, master of the city of his body. So again, we're seeing this analogy that the body, uh, which say this whole Bhagavatam chapter is expanding this understanding that we can compare the body to a city. So, now, he's called the master of the city of his body, the Prabhu. Uh, as we said that there is a higher Prabhu, that's a super soul, the real Prabhu. Uh, that master of the city of the body does not create activities, just nor does he induce people to act, nor does he create the fruits of action. All this is enacted by the most material nature. So, there we see that um, uh, many concepts there, but the, the initial thing to understand is that the body can, can be compared to a city. And that helps us to um, see our position. So, for instance, uh, all of us have a home in the city of Melbourne. And we understand that uh, we may rent a property, some of us may even own a property. But ultimately, it's the government who owns everything and controls everything. So, you know, if they decide they're going to put a freeway through your home, you have to do it. <laughs> and uh, you have to sell it. For instance, in the Middle East, in the Middle East, we see that for you know, decades, centuries, someone says, well, this part of Syria, 
I have my home here. <laughs> and then someone comes in, the government, says, Oh, we're the government, you have to do that. And they just have to leave in the hundreds of thousands. And they can never come back. Some of them, they let them come back. <coughs> and another, another government comes in, and we're the government, you all get out. You all get out. And then <coughs> sometimes they let them back in. And another government comes. You'll get <laughs> So, you know, uh, this body is like that. Uh, that <coughs> it is a city, uh, but there is a supreme proprietor, and when he says, get it up, you have to get it up. <laughs> and that is called death. So, so therefore we have a a certain amount of control. But now the interesting thing is that uh, in in the Bhagavad Gita, the third chapter, text 27, uh, under the influence of false ego and ignorance, because uh, we're all in ignorance, born in ignorance, we don't know the difference between the body and ourself. Uh, we take uh, ourselves as the body, the one thing. We don't know that there is a soul uh, that is transmigrating from one body to another according to one's desires and karma. We don't know that. And <coughs> We also, even if some try to have some inkling that the self is different from the body, they may not exactly know the nature of the self. Uh, Some may think that, you know, as the body deteriorates and dies, then another body will grow self will be that body, as if the, the self may come back, but it's like a different self as a result of a different body. Um, some, so, you know, there, there are many different philosophies that people don't really understand, that the soul is quite amazing, very difficult to understand, but very difficult to understand is the difference between the self and the supreme self. So they seem to be in complete ignorance of, and generally, we just, in this world, identify ourselves with this material body, whatever this, you know, whichever body the soul ends up, we, in, we, we understand that I am this body, and uh, I am acting independently. That uh, a dog is thinking that I am barking, and chasing away, you know, intruders into my territory. And they mark out the territory in, the, in, in their way that they do. <laughs> in my terri- territory, anyone who comes into here, you know, so the dogs, you know, I'm, do- I'm performing this activity. And in the same way, actually, that the dogs are performing that, that activity, if a human identifies with the body, they're no better than the dog. That I am performing this activity independently. 
uh, the situation one is in. So there are 8 million, uh, 8 million 400,000 different species of life, and, and according to one's desires, one is placed into those. So at the beginning of this chapter described that the desires are unlimited. So Prabhupada says there's at least 8 million 400,000 different desires. But then, so for instance, in the body of the dog, so amongst the 8 million 400,000 different types of desires, that is one desire will get you into the body of the dog. But then there are many different varieties of dogs. Some like, you know, you've got your border collie, you know, the border collie likes to run more, some like to just sit more, you know, and um, some like to chase other animals like you, you know, the heroes and what have you. You know, some you know, a little bit savage, like the wolves. So, you know, the desires vary. So there's at least 8,400,000 species, but then that expands, you know, so, as, as it says, it's pretty much unlimited. So, but what is unique is that in each of the 8,400,000 different species of life, there's four things that they all do in common. doesn't matter whether they take birth. You know, um, sometimes as Prabhupada says, you know, he's writing his books and you see the little dot, you know, you think it's a full stop, but it starts walking around the page. It's <laughs> time a little spot, you realize, well, that's a living entity. That living entity also has uh, four propensities, which, uh, which is eating, a little insect that is about the size of a double eat, it will rest, sleep, um, defend itself, in other words, you know, try to make a secure position. Do I stay on the folding pages? Perhaps go to the edge. <laughs> and sex life for reproduction. That's common in all the different species of life. In fact, uh, <coughs> if you look at all the different 400,000 different species of life, you see that, that their entire lives revolve particularly around reproduction. So much effort. You know, their whole cycle of life culminates in reproducing the species. So that there is, so um, you see, for some animals, you know, to find a mate, to reproduce, uh, it takes up so much energy, so much struggle, so much danger. But there is some, above all things, it impels them to the greatest degree above all things. But basically, sex life, in all species of life, to one degree or another, is the most impelling force. So, um, so therefore, here, um, Shri Prabhupada describes that, um, you know, here, uh, this city, uh, on the outskirts of the city, there are many beautiful trees and creepers encircling a nice lake, surrounding the lake with many groups of birds and bees. They're always chanting and humming. So, 
uh, is describing that, uh, as it says here, So the various parts of the body, those which incite sexual impulses, referred to hearing here indirectly. Um, the favourable conditions surrounding the sex impulse are compared here to the garden or a nice solitary park. When one sees the opposite sex, naturally the sex impulse increases. So um, in all species of life, you know, they have their mating rituals. They're quite bizarre, something. They're quite spectacular, something. But, you know, they, uh, like, you know, the peacocks, the display of the feathers, and, you know, some birds puff up their chests, and, you know, there's singing and some of the things, and, you know, in, in a particular season, what have you. So it's very similar. And, uh, you know, some, for some living in the ocean, it's when the moon bites, you know, certain days of the moon, they've just, Sets them all off by the medium, so you can't control yourself. <laughs> and uh, even corals are not having So, um, you know, this um, inhuman time of life, which we're most concerned with because, because we're, we're human, so we can actually sit and hear this. So, unlike the little creature that walks around the page of the bubble tongue. We can actually enter into the understanding of the Bhagavatam. And the other, you know, so that little speck, he, he may be um, you know, walking around the Bhagavatam and think, oh, you say, you know, you must know the Bhagavatam very well, he's probably walked on every page. But actually, there's nothing. There's no concept of even the page, the writing, or anything like that. There's a little food there, eat that, if you meet another little spot somewhere, oh, this could be interesting. <laughs> So eating, sleeping, making the thing. That's what he, he wanders around the Bhagavatam, all the things is eating, sleeping, making the thing. But we, of course, we can uh, hear uh, the Bhagavatam. And we can actually you know, take that transcendental knowledge and uh, get out of the body the concept of life. <coughs> so uh, <coughs> this um, just therefore, because in the um, you know life is in, in all societies and organised in such a way as to control the sex urge for peace and uh, uh, within the um, within society. Because if if we perform actions in this world, as we've said, because the body is literally under the control of the material energy, which is controlled by Krishna, if we engage in activities, we will get a material reaction. And therefore, any sinful activities Eating things we shouldn't eat, intoxication, gambling, this is sex, many things, will incur some suffering. So, you know, that, that was also described there that the, um, uh, you know, we, we, we discussed that.
how is it that one in the divine consciousness they understand that they're doing so many things with the body but actually they're not doing anything the next verse describes that uh, one who performs his duty without attachment surrendering the results to the supreme lord is unaffected by sinful reaction as the lotus leaf is untouched by water And further on, it also describes that the steadily devoted soul attains unadulterated peace because he offers the result of all activities to me, whereas a person who is not in union with the divine, who is greedy for the fruits of his labor, becomes entangled. So, uh, these... The activities that we perform with the material body, they actually create a material reaction and they also, uh, you know, one desire produces so many other desires and that produces our next body and therefore we must suffer birth, death, old age and disease. <coughs> so, the um, one in human form of life, the activities that we perform, if we're, one may not necessarily be self-realized, but the scriptures regulate our activities so we're actually elevating uh, and moving towards um, uh, a level of existence where we're not you know, increasing the suffering and the entanglement in the world. So therefore, sex life is regulated. Otherwise, in this material body, uh, unregulated, unregulated material activities will produce the next body and it just goes on unlimitedly. So it's like, and above all things, as it describes here, you know, that, uh, this sex life is, is uh, so difficult to control. Prabhupada says, when one sees the opposite sex, naturally the sex impulse increases. It is said that if a man in a solitary place does not become agitated upon seeing a woman, he is to be considered a brahmachari. But this practice is almost impossible. So, you know, therefore, the um, above all things, as we said, the primary activity is this for animals reproduction, which is sex life. And for humans, you know, humans of course uh, even disregard the whole process of reproduction. They actually just uh, 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 capture by the uh, sex desire itself. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, very, very entangling because very, very sinful. So, um, you know, we see that uh, what people will do, that uh, sex life is, is so captivating that people engage in the most abominable, risky, sinful, degraded, harmful, vicious activities if somehow or another it increases their ability to uh, have sex life. So here it's describing that 
you know, there are certain things which, uh, you know, for all species and humans, so humans, uh, like any other animal, if they're not quite uh, conscious, they create an uh, external facility which, uh, you know, uh, helps to impel sex life, uh, both for themselves and for the person they're trying to incite to, you know, sex life. So, for instance, we're coming up, to, as an example, we're coming up to the Melbourne Cup. Right? So, you know, if you see advertisements for the Melbourne Cup, you know, it's 90% fashion show. Right? They, there's no, it, hardly, it, it appears it's hardly about the, you know, the horses. It's about going there and seeing beautiful women dressed up, the most beautiful women, dressed up in the most beautiful clothing. You know, all sorts of foods, which shouldn't be eaten. Music, some of the best. You know, they invited uh, Taylor Swift to come and sing there. But she wouldn't do it because of the simple activity involved. But they, you know, it's all of this activity and, and, and money, you know, to say obscene amounts of money, you know. <laughs> One and spent. They're very attractive, you know, for people. So it's all, uh, you know, basically the uh, like, like here, you know, the what is conducive for sex life. But to do that, they will engage in the most simple activities. So you know, um, actually, the whole racing industry, like previously, you know, the greyhound industry was shut down completely because uh, they, the cruelty, you know, they were using live rabbits to train the greyhounds, you know, and they'd catch them and tear them to pieces and things. And um, that's the cruelty to the dogs themselves. So now that's happening with the racing industry. A lot of it is coming out now, well time, you know, the activists uh, and the liberationists just before the Melbourne Cup. That what they've discovered is that um, they've suspected this for a long time, but now they have the proof that basically, you know, they breed, you know, perhaps uh, fourteen thousand uh, racehorses per year or something. It was a phenomenal amount. So then they had this policy which came about through also the greyhounds because you know when they're when they're not wanted, they basically kill them off. So with the horses, they have what's called horse wastage. Right? Horse wastage means that when you run a horse for three or four years, and you can't, you know, it's not going to run anymore, or you, it, you know, you may have a season and you can sell it off to someone who then will have to get rid of it. So then, what to do with the horses? They just don't want this fourteen thousand out. In the statistics. There's about 5,000 a year which just disappear. Right? This is the, the, the new controversy. Because what they found is that these horses are ending up in the uh, abattoirs. Yeah. 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 And so uh, what happens is that um, you know, rather than keep the horse and eat the good grass, which the new horses get eaten, some things and feed and look after and pay all the veterinary costs and what have you. Although it's written in the, you know, the rules of racing, 
um, they must, as a result of the greyhound scandal in horse racing as well, they must look after these animals for the rest of their life. They actually must be careful. So but what they're finding is that they're actually listed on the computer as active and racing, and yet they've literally, they've actually been dead for a long time. They've actually been taken to the storehouse. And of course they have these, you know, the uh, animal liberationists are very, very um, expert at that for all these films of the, you know, inside the storehouse. And they, you know, <laughs> they, they film their, um, their brain and they can name literally the horses, you know, they can, because it's brain behind the chip and everything. And so they can just say, this is this racial system. So, so, much so, you know, that's a big scam. But so much sinful activity. Uh, so cheating. I think if anyone who's going to the races once saw that the, the, the horses that they're watching to facilitate my sex life and you know, fashion, beauty and eating some, you know, probably the next year they will be sent to the slaughterhouse the, the, the journey to the slaughterhouse is excruciating and some of them end up underneath a whole lot of horses and they basically, you know, they have to drag them out by the head. You know, they just... Then they get them into the slaughterhouse and of course they sometimes they have to you know, shoot them four or five times and you know, in between that. They have problem with um, in the general production that, you know, sometimes and the aims with uh, you know, electric shocks and you know, they beat them and sweat them. Very quick, kick them and some of these things, all these things. Like if people saw that, from, you know, this is the sinful uh, activity that supports my enjoying my senses, or you know, one one outing, you know, going on an outing, one can, that horse that's its face, so I can enjoy that. Path. So very very simple. <coughs> but the people who um, you know, so therefore there's, you know, there's so much cover-ups and so many things. So it's very, very demoniac. Uh, as Prabhupada said, I was listening to lecture a couple of weeks ago, Prabhupada said, currently, the world is being ruled by, in the various countries, the world is being ruled by righteousness. <laughs> so, but, the point is, how much, you know, sinful activity, how much trouble one will go how can people give up their sex life when they're doing this sort of activity to just increase their chances of their sex life? If that's what they do, that's the sort of thing that they would, that's the extent of what they would do to give the so-called civilized humans to uh, facilitate a little sense of And you ask them to give it up. They'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal, they'll kill. So so, so that's why Prabhupada says, you know, it's not possible. Uh, but uh, as we um, uh, see in the Shema, in, in, in these verses of the, uh, again, if you, you know, if you if you see the verses of the, uh, this um, scientific chapter that describes that. Um, you know, in verse 23, 20, 
2 it describes that an intelligent person does not take part in the sources of misery which are due to contact with the material senses such pleasures have a beginning and an end and so the wise man is not delighted so by hearing the Shema Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita you know we come to our senses that actually just like so many different species of life, we've got this body which is a machine which is being controlled by the material energy. And if we're not careful how we act in this life, it will produce another material body within those eight million four hundred thousand different species. Even taking birth as a human, as we see on this planet, is very, very risky. There's billions and billions of human beings. I would be terrified to take birth in that place in that body on this planet right now. <laughs> and um, so, but it describes that <coughs> the liberated person is not attracted to the material sense pleasure, but is always in, in trance enjoying the pleasure within. In this way, the self-realized person enjoys unlimited happiness, for he concentrates on the supreme. So actually, what we hear from the Shema Bhagavatam is that we, if we turn our attention to the proprietor of the body, the actual owner and permitter of the body, that we can actually live in a transcendental loving relationship with that person after God And then all our activities, although we're acting with the body, the mind and the words, if we don't identify with the body, but we identify as the soul acting for the purpose of serving the personality of Godhead, although the body is acting, actually we have nothing to do with the action or the reaction. And one enjoys transcendental pleasure within. So, <clears throat> for instance, uh, just like Srila uh, Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada followed in the footsteps of Arjuna, that he only acted for the pleasure of the Supreme Lord and his representatives. And you can just imagine Srila Prabhupada's transcendental pleasure as he acted to give this knowledge. The Bhagavad Gita, Srila Bhagavatam, all over the world, and saw temples coming up and books going out shout going out and people being liberated. We can barely you know, understand that transcendental pleasure having uh, and always being accompanied by Krishna, the personality of God here, just like Arjun. Arjun, from, you know, even from childhood, his life consisted in pleasing Krishna, his friend. And he acted as uh, an instrument in the hands of his friend. And Krishna, that relationship between the Supreme Soul, uh, as we said, there are two numbers in the body. That also within the body is the super soul. And he, he actually directs the wanderings of all living beings, especially and directly directs the activities of the devotees. So, like uh, Arjuna, Krishna was personally on his chariot. Throughout the course of Arjuna's whole life, whenever he had to make decisions or whenever there was um, 
big milestone of events, his marriage, this over there, Krishna was there at every step directing Arjun, helping him to uh, you know, get this, uh, enjoy life to the fullest extent. <coughs> As we see in the back of the year, 9.22, Prabhupada says that for those who are fully devoted to me, I personally carry what they lack and deserve what they have. And Prabhupada says a devotee should never think if they uh, serve Krishna, engage in devotion, that there will ever be any uh, scarcity or unhappiness. If one takes to the service of Krishna, there will always be abundance and transcendental bliss. That's, that's what we see. That's what we see in the life of Srila Prabhupada and the charities and the devotees. You know. so, <clears throat> so that is uh, this body, which is a machine, uh, is also sometimes, sometimes compared to, uh, you know, you have the five senses compared to five horses. And I sort of, which is, you know, very interesting, because the body is like the chariot, <coughs> the, the horses are the five senses, the reins are the, uh, the mind, uh, the driver is the intelligence, and the soul is the passenger, although there's another passenger, that's the unseen friend, that's Krishna, there's another passenger. And, um, but those five senses, you know, it's very interesting, usually we just think of the body, it's the whole thing. But actually, you know, you really have to think in terms of the senses because, uh, you know, one horse may lead the others. Or one horse may be defective, you know, the body, you have to really look at it. So, uh, and in human form of life, especially, all five horses are very powerful, very active. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, but, the driver, which is like the intelligence, is taking control of the mind, which is directing the uh, you know, senses. That's the proper way. Otherwise, for those who are dictated by the senses, the horses are, are pulling away at the reins and the driver has lost control and the chariot is going over a cliff. But, we see that Krishna took the reins of Arjuna's chariot. So, in other words, when one takes direction of the scripture, it is just like Krishna taking the reins of the chariot of Arjuna. He becomes our intelligence. In other words, that's what's called becoming one with Krishna. He has his individuality, we have our individuality, but Krishna actually uh, personally assists they're both in the same chariot and Krishna is personally taken. Where do you want me to go, Arjun? Take me here in the battle of Kurukshetra. Krishna is following the instructions of Arjun. And take me here, take me here, take me here. And he is doing it very expertly. But if there's any danger, because he's the personality of God here, he also has, uh, you know, he can protect Arjun. Uh, so uh, this is our position. Although Krishna allows us that little independence to use our own intelligence and to serve this person in a very individual way, but as the, uh, also the, the driver of the chariot of our body, by giving this intelligence, he is always uh, we're working with him hand in hand. And that transcendental friendship in spreading Krishna consciousness, uh, that, that, that joy uh, is what the transcendental. See, and although they're engaged 
with the body mind words that actually completely liberated being within this body. So I'll just leave it there if anyone has any questions or comments <coughs> about uh, any of that. Uh, 
Now, it says the Lord is definitely the supreme person and his activities are transcendental. One who understands this is a liberated person from the very beginning of his study of every year. Such a nice instruction. So even Papa says, just hypothetically accepted. You don't fully understand it, but you've got to read the Gita in that line that Krishna is the supreme person of God. Not, not that we are one with God, but, you know, we are supreme, there is a personality of God here, his name is Krishna, and he is supreme. This is, if you read the Bhagavad Gita in that, in that way, from the very beginning of your study of the Bhagavad Gita, you are liberated. And Prabhupada clarified that one time in Hyderabad, 1974. <coughs> he said that, uh, he said that uh, uh, <coughs> if, um, he said, if you know Krishna is the supreme personality of God here, you immediately jump forward in the liberation 50 percent. So then he gives a percentage. Right? So you're liberated from the beginning if you read Bhagavad Gita and accept, well, you're the authority, Krishna, so I'm reading this from the Supreme Authority and I'm reading it like that. No interpretation, what you've said, that's good enough. From the very beginning of the study of the Gita, you're liberated and as soon as you, not hypothetically, but you're saying yes, there is God, Krishna is that supreme person I've got it, immediately jump forward 50%. So it's not that hard, it all comes down to hearing. Hearing and uh, constantly purify the heart, and that is bhakti, means that the senses become purified and engaged in the master of the senses. So the Prabhupada, he's a very